So last week, um, we were kind of interrupted uh, by, fire. Uh, by fire, or at least by smoke. Um, the smoke machine got jammed, and it started coming through the vents, and um, no, uh, I think we had some AC issues. <laughs> those, those seem to be plaguing us um, as of late. Yeah, I did not realize that um, it was as bad as it was, and uh, y'all did not warm me quickly enough. I just thought that it was hot in here. <laughs> and then it wasn't until I turned around, someone pointed, I was like, that's actually not supposed to be smoke coming out of the vents. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> That was our fire drill for the year, I guess. Um, just a couple of takeaways from that. We did not move quickly. <laughs> so probably next time, um, if you see smoke behind me and I start sweating more than normal, um, yeah, just be like, hey, Landon, there's smoke. <laughs> Feel free to interrupt me. We can always pick up. Uh, the next week. So that's what we're going to do today. We're not going to retread all the ground that we uh, that we kind of walked down last week with First Peter chapter 3, but I do want to leave us kind of, uh, because we were just wrapping up and, and getting ready to move into the verses in Ephesians, um, and with all the kind of like hectic exiting of last week, I feel like it's probably worth um, reviewing the conclusions that we came to last week because that could have slipped everyone's mind after um, we had to leave for the for the sake of smoke. So um, we'll start back in First Peter chapter uh, three this evening, but we won't spend too much time there. I do want to kind of just uh, recenter us on what we're looking at or what we began looking at last week. What we'll do our best to try to conclude this week, which is. Um, just kind of really looking at guardrails right now. Out of that first heaven, that first chunk where we were looking at the intermediate heaven and discussing it, there were several questions that kind of came out uh, around that. And uh, I wanted to, to take last week and now this week to kind of spend some time thinking about some of the, some of the verses where some of the uh, questions that were that were brought up um, came from and just kind of dig into that. So uh, as a reminder, I'm going to just read through the kind of section that I read through at the beginning last week. This will be kind of the theme of what we're looking at today. So these are guardrails, specifically guardrails when we're considering the intermediate heaven or heaven between now and the resurrection. Um, so here, here we go. Jesus, so here's the guardrails. Jesus did not descend into hell to incur any further punishment. When Jesus said, it is finished, he had finished the full cup of God's wrath upon our sin. Also, Jesus did not go to hell for the purpose of extending an offer of salvation to anyone in hell who died before his incarnation. Finally, Abraham is seen as the premier example of faith, and it was because of his faith that God counted him as righteous. And we'll, we'll get to that text tonight. Therefore, there is no reason to believe that, that Old Testament saints were kept from the presence of God until after the resurrection of Christ. All right, so with that being said, we began kind of exploring one of two questions that we're going to finish up tonight. I'll restate those questions, and then we'll just kind of briefly look at the First Peter text um, which we covered in depth last week. Um, so, question number one. 
kind of coming out of that first session on heaven. And again, this is a summation of, of several different questions that I got from several different people afterwards. And as, as I kind of was working together to, uh, to, to put this, this um, session together, um, I wanted to kind of do as good a job as possible in restating the questions as simply as possible um, while also doing justice to um, the various ways that those questions were presented. And, the, and it kind of comes out in two different ways. So after that session, you could think of one of the questions as being, but didn't he preach to those in prison? Um, and we began looking at that last week. Um, and then the second question, uh, second way of kind of summarizing another category of questions is, didn't he lead a host of captives? Um, we'll look at that uh, today. Um, so, like I said, last week we spent a good deal of time really just doing a full um, analysis of the First Peter chapter three verses seventeen through twenty-two. Um, so we're not going to read we're not going to redo that again, but I, I'm going to um, <clears throat> kind of go over the summary statement uh, that we kind of came to at the end of last week's uh, session, and that probably no one heard because there was smoke. Um, coming from the vent. So here's that here's that con- that statement in conclusion. I've kind of um, reworked it just a little bit, uh, so it's not exactly as as it was said last time. It's a little bit longer um, than than last time, but uh, forgive me for that. So um, here's the kind of the conclusion that we came to after examining, um, or that I hope that we came to after examining that text last week. Um, so. That conclusion is, as the construction of the ark was a public declaration of the faith of Noah, so also baptism is an outward declaration of our faith that Christ has been raised. The public nature of faith often results in ridicule from those who are perishing. That was true of Noah, who built the ark in faith, as well as Christ, who is the true and living ark, who delivers us safely to God. We are not proclaiming in baptism some mere outward cleansing or washing away of dirt. We are proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. And that is what the First Peter section of text is intended to tell us. We dealt with the difficulties last week. Um, for the sake of time, we are not going to, to do that. I encourage you to go back and listen to the, the previous session. <clears throat> If you happen to miss out on that one, um, today we're going to push forward into the second question. That second question being, well, didn't he lead a host of captives? Um, And usually when that question is posed or the way that that question is thought of is that at the resurrection there was some type of like hostage transfer that took place from one place into heaven, right? So when we think of like him leading a host of captives, generally when that's posed against the idea that um, Abraham went to heaven and all of the Old Testament saints went to heaven. Um, there's this misconception that s- somehow they were kept from the glory of God until the resurrection of Christ. And that is a, a misconception um, and, and a false way of thinking about that. We're going to look at tonight um, a couple of ways to kind of dig in and think about that in a in a richer sense. Um, this is not something that will be the first time that we've done this. When we went through the Roman study several years back, we we spent 
um, considerable amount of time digging into these ideas about what it is that saves a person and um, what it is that God claims of those who had faith in the Old Testament. Um, A little bit of a giveaway to that is that quote that I made earlier in the guardrail statement that God counted him as righteous. Um, Speaking of Abraham there. So we're going to spend some time looking at that. But before we do, let's look at that. That second question, didn't he lead a host of captives? And if he did lead, lead a host of captives, what does that mean? What was the writer of that text trying to get across to us? And um, should we conclude from that text that there was some kind of prisoner transfer that took place? Right? Um, I want to go ahead and put out there for you before we even get there. No, there wasn't a prisoner transfer. Right? There was not some transfer from one holding place into heaven. Um, Faith has always been the way that we get to heaven, and God has always counted us righteous in the work of Christ, and that goes for Abraham in the Old Testament um, as well. So what then do we make of this text in Ephesians? Uh, So in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, this is where you'll tend to see this, um, this idea of the host of captives being put forward. So I'm going to read for you Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10 here. So, starting in verse 7. But but grace was given to to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions? The earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So there's kind of two things that we should that tend to to trip us up in this, and that that comes in verse eight there, and also in verse nine. Um, Let's think about verse eight first. Uh, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. Okay? What does it mean that he ascended on high and led a host of captives? What, what's, what's the purpose of that text? The first thing that we should uh, understand, and this is a quotation of an Old Testament text here. Um, another thing that we should understand is the, the language that is being used here is a language that's intending to point us towards a type of total victory of the one who's leading and giving gifts, right? That language is one of like complete and utter victory. The idea being is that um, if you could picture a king going off to war and then winning that war, how would that king return to his kingdom? How would he return? With the spoils of the victory of war is how he would return. He would come back with those that he was at war with in chains. And he would lead them before his city. There's a, yeah. 
So, so here's here's here, so what we're not saying is that we're not saying that he went to hell, preached, and then people came back. Okay, that's not the language that we're getting here. The language that we're getting of what comes from this is that when Christ ascended to heaven, he ascended victorious as king. Compl- who are the captives? Who are the captives? Who was he at war with? These are things that we should be thinking when we think about this text. Who is he at war with? Satan, demons, you and I? So like in the sense that you want to say that we are a part of the captives that he led, yes. Some captives, through this total victory, some of those who were enemies have become friends. Have become brothers. Right? Some of those who were enemies have become those who have received the gifts that he's going to talk about giving. But when he ascended on high, he ascended completely victorious over all enemies. Whether or not those enemies would become friends, or whether or not they would return enslaved to the one who was king over all. Right. This is not here speaking of a prisoner transfer. This is a language that presents to us the idea that we serve a king who was completely victorious and is using the language of war here. This is the language of war. Like if you were living in the time that this text was originally written, you would have a picture of what it means to be let off. Here's the thing about the Israelites. The Israelites knew what it was to win, but they also knew what it was to be the ones that were let off. Right? Like this is language that we have a hard time wrestling with sometimes because we've not experienced this type of loss when it comes to being at war and then losing. And this is also something that we've never seen war that's happened in this type of fashion. Right? So because of that, we, we sometimes misunderstand the, the language of this text here. Um, believe it or not, that's not the most difficult portion of this text or the part that's most often misunderstood here. That actually comes in uh, verse 9. Um, we're speaking about this work of ascending. So what does it mean that he's ascended? Where did Christ ascend? To the right hand of the Father, He is in heaven, He is reigning as King until all of His enemies are under His feet. So where was He when He ascended? And this is the point of what He's saying here in verse 9. In saying that He ascended, what does it mean but that He had also descended into the lower regions? That is the earth, right? So here's something that's like, brought out from this text that you wouldn't necessarily know if you were just looking at it in the book of Psalms where he's quoting from. Is that this text and the idea that the king would ascend has embedded within it the idea that he would come to earth. Like the incarnation is embedded within this text. And this is what he's pointing at here um, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9, and saying that he ascended, 
What does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, that is, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So, this text here is not speaking to prisoner transfer that happens um, in the three days or at the moment of the resurrection. Um, this is language of war used to describe the total victory of the king that we serve um, at the moment that he has ascended and taken his rightful place on the throne. Right. So uh, last week's dive into um, the text that we found there in first Peter chapter three, as well as this um, Ephesians chapter four text are dealing with the what I would call like proof text that would that would attempt to be used to demonstrate um, perhaps that Christ somehow uh, went to hell um, or that there was some type of transfer between. Um, between some holding place and heaven. What we're going to do next is we're going to demonstrate uh, a positive... We're going to use a positive exploration of the book of Romans um, to demonstrate this reality that there was no need for a transfer of any kind. Because when Christ... when, When God declared Abraham righteous, He declared Abraham righteous. Why? Faith. And when he declared him righteous, what was lacking? What was lacking? When God said what he said to him, when he made him a promise and he believed God and God counted that faith as righteousness, what more was there that needed to be done? What else needed to be done? Nothing else needed to be done. That's one thing that we're going to say out the gate is that when Abraham closed his eyes on this side, he opened them in the presence of God because he was declared righteous by God and therefore was welcomed into the presence of God. God didn't say no. Pause for a moment. Now here's the here's the interesting thing because from our perspective all throughout the Old Testament, it would seem that God might have a hint of unfairness to him. Because he would punish some for sin and declare others righteous on the basis of faith who were sinners. Just because they believed him when he made promises to them. And from our earthly perspective, looking at that, it might seem as though, is he unjust? Is there favoritism? Is it unfair? That's the question that we would be asking. Not not did he put them in some holding place, but why would he call some righteous to begin with? When no one is righteous, no, not one. What's the differentiator? And this is where we're going to look here in Romans chapter 3. This is where we'll be spending the rest of our time 
uh, here this afternoon. So go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We'll start looking in verse uh, 21 of chapter 3. Um, if you were here for the Romans uh, study several, several years ago at this point, you'll know that um, we spent weeks upon weeks, hours upon hours in the chapter 3, verse 21, down through the end of chapter 4. I'm going to attempt to do that in one Wednesday night part of the session um, tonight. So there will be much that we pass over here. Um, there's going to be much gold in this that we are not able to mine out uh, tonight. What I want you to pay attention to every step along the way is who's the one that's declaring righteous? Who's the one being declared righteous? When did they live before or after the cross? All of this should be obvious as we're, as we're going through this. And why is it that this person, if they lived before the cross, is given to us as the example of faith that makes one righteous? Right? So we're going to be building a case today that though we might have questions and have to work out these difficult other passages, that the foundation of what we believe is that we know for a fact that God declared righteous men because they believed God. Right? And that though there was a moment, Abraham lived in that moment, Noah lived in that moment, all the Old Testament saints that passed Believing the promises of God lived in that moment where the world around might look and say he is unjust. It was at the cross that he that he showed us all that he demonstrated. Not only is he just, but he is also the justifier. That's where we see this. That question about his justice that was looming through the Old Testament when he was passing over sin. For the sake of faith is demonstrated in the work of Christ on the cross. So, verse 21, chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This, is, this was, so this work of Christ on the cross, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by a law of faith. It has always been, church, it has always been by faith that one finds themselves in the presence of God. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is, the God, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, 
of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And now he brings in Abraham to demonstrate this reality, to demonstrate to us that it has been by faith in the one who makes promises all along. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. Where do the righteous go when they die, church? Where do they go? To heaven. How are we counted righteous? Faith alone. The work of Christ alone. What does the scripture say? Hmm? Abraham's bosom is communicating a truth about what it is to be in God. In the so think about Abraham's bosom. Who when 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 Paul here in verse four is pulling the the Jews' thoughts into this. When he's pulling them in, what is he doing? He's pointing to the one that they would trace themselves back to. The language of Abraham's bosom is that same type of mechanism, right? It's that same type of mechanism. It wasn't a holding place that then they needed to be transferred from because Abraham was righteous. He was righteous. Then why did the Jews read the Messiah? Why did he make the Because if, if we can just go by faith. So, because that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. That's the difference in the promise. Yeah. The promise, we're not walking just by faith, but if we have faith, we start out with faith and we continue, but we get the Holy Spirit to help us continue our walk as He would have us to walk and grow closer to Him. But before the cross, they didn't have that advantage. They had to walk solely by faith. They had to believe the God that made promises. Yeah. So when we get the when we like if we if we were to look at Hebrews and look at the hall of faith, it doesn't start at the cross. It starts long before the cross, right? So God made it clear to all what He was doing at the crucifixion, at the resurrection. But it was always faith in the One who made promises. So Abraham, God comes to him. He makes promises. And here's the thing. I would say it's easier for us to believe now than it was for him. This is why he is the example put forward. Because who knows how clear of a vision that he had. Here's what he knew. That the God that made promises to him was faithful to complete them. And when he believed with faith, the same type of faith that each and every one of us had, God declared him righteous. In that moment, God didn't say, Paul's now and I'm going to need to work myself through history. He said, you believe in me. I'm the one that the promises are based on, right? That's the idea here. 
So Noah, before any of this, and we talked about this last week, Noah, before any of these promises were made, God came to him and told him that destruction was going to come. He told him to build this ark, and what did Noah do? What did Noah do? He believed God decades before the rain started. And because of that belief, he was saved from the wrath of God that literally destroyed everyone else. What saved him? Faith faith leads to obedience. Faith leads to obedience. Faith leads to work every time. That's why when we looked at Ephesians, the idea is that he can point to and say, it's this baptism that saves us because it's not simply a being washed by water, right? It's a belief that Christ was raised. And when I'm baptized, I'm telling every one of you, I'm telling the whole world this foolish reality that someone came back from the dead. The same one that claimed that he was God. I'm proclaiming that. That's what you proclaim when you're baptized. And for most of us, that proclamation comes with very little persecution. We have preached to brothers around the world from us who when they make that proclamation, they will have their houses burned down for the case of it. The rubber meets the road when the matches are lit. The rubber meets the road when... You've not seen a flood like has been described, but you continue building the boat no matter what ridicule comes your way. The rubber meets the road when you can't have children and God promises you descendants that count the sand on the seashore, count the stars in the sky. Faith. It was faith the whole time. It was faith the whole time. And who are we to tell God that He can't declare someone righteous because they believe Him? So what does the scripture say in regards to righteousness? Right? That's the that's the question before us right now. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. That's what scripture says. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. Verse 5, chapter 4 of the book of Romans. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. So this is a quotation from David here in verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
So those who had faith in the Old Testament, Adam or Abraham, David here, they speak to this knowledge of a God who can forgive and cover sin. Do you think that they knew what the cross would look like? Like we can see looking back at it. Do you think you believe more than them? Do you think that your faith is greater than theirs? Could you imagine? Could you imagine standing in Abraham's shoes being made these great promises and holding to them? Could you imagine having the having the weapon of death raised to your one and only son whom the promise is going to come through and willing to do what God had commanded you to do knowing that He was capable of the resurrection. Knowing. This is why when we look at faith, when we consider faith that these Old Testament saints are put forward as examples of the faith that we ourselves should have. Because we have a a clearer picture of it than they had. But at the end of the day, it, it is not the clarity of the picture of the promise, but the trust in the one who made the promise. That's it. That's it. I can make you promises that I will fail at. You could believe me 100% in my promises. What will, your prom- what will your faith in me amount to when I fail you? Ultimately, when Abraham believed, it was not even how much of the picture he could see, but that he believed in the one who said it. He believed. And when he believed, he was counted by that one who made the promise who gave him the details that he needed in the moment as righteous. Because that one that made the promise was going to be the one that worked to complete it. That same one, believer, that same one is the one who's promised you to shape you into the image of Christ. Do you believe that he will succeed in doing that? From faith... To faith, from faith, for faith, as the opening of the book of Romans would say. Verse 9, and we're getting close, I promise. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteous. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? So before or after he had done any of this work? Was it not after, but before He was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. 
Right? So he's having to make this case to those who understand this situation. And he's using Abraham. Like literally, we walk in the footsteps of Abraham. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that cannot exist. So when he said this in the Old Testament, I have made you the father of many nations. Was there ever a doubt that it would come to be? Was it possible that he would fail at this? Was it possible that he would not bring the cross to be? Was it possible that he would not spread this gospel message to the nations? Because he made even then this promise. Not only would he be the father of the Jewish nation, but that he would be the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Verse 22. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Pay attention to these words. Who did Abraham believe in? The one who made the promises, who do we believe in? It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The entire position that Paul puts forward in the book of Romans is from faith for faith. From faith for faith. In the one who makes promises and keeps promises. Who declares righteous 
those who believe in Him. You are counted righteous today if you believe in Him. Abraham was counted righteous because he believed in Him. It has always been faith. It's never been anything other than faith. I'm going to close this there. Um, We will pick up next week um, looking at uh, another question regarding um, this intermediate heaven. If you have any questions coming out of this session, please come and get with me afterwards. We can add those and go forward. Here's what I here's what I ask you, and this is one of the things that I attempt to do every single time that we do this, is that when I'm presenting to you guardrails, what am I doing? What have we spent the last 45 minutes doing? Looking at Scripture. When you present ideas and questions, I'm going to push you into Scripture. Push me into Scripture. Push yourselves into Scripture. That's where we'll find the truth. This this idea, and um, we have, we find ourselves, and this is the this is the danger, right? So, like one of the things that I attempt to do every single time, and it's it's like especially necessary as we like dig in as we go further along in this, is that we, the place where truth can be found is in God's Word. Um, The church, in different places at different times, has found itself believing things that it was told. Not things that it could pull from Scripture. Not things that it could examine in the context of Scripture. So last week, that's what we were doing. Looking at the context of that verse. Spending time digging through it. Trying to understand what God's Word says there. Because the conclusion that we came to last week was not that the primary purpose of that was to speak to anyone in prison. But it was to make this identification between the ark and Noah's faith in constructing it, 
and the persecutions that the world, especially in their time, would find themselves experiencing when they themselves found themselves baptized? Do you think that the waves slammed against the side of the ark as the storm was coming? But it was the ark that kept them safe. Do you think that when you believe in the work of Christ, that there will be only calm waters? But the point is, the point is, is that He will deliver you safely to the Father. Right? That's the point of that text. And when we look at Scripture, we should be looking at Scripture with that type of examination. Like, what is the point of that text? Right? What is it trying to say from beginning to end? And we find ourselves... and. Too often this is the case. But we find ourselves, we'll just take a snippet of a text and we'll understand it just for what the words in that sentence say without considering the chapters that came before it or the chapters that came after it or sometimes even the thoughts before it and the thoughts after it. We'll think that that thing was the only thing. And we'll treat it like that. We build devotions that are built like that. We treat our daily reading of God's Word in that same fashion. Um, Read the whole of Scripture. Read from beginning to end. Books at length. I know that you don't have time. I know that your time is pressed. I know that you're like spent from beginning to end of every single day. But you will not get the value of Scripture simply by getting tick versions of God's Word. Like, you can't, you can't. You need to spend time in it. We need to encourage one another to spend time in it. Um, we need to encourage one another by it. Um, May God's may God's spirit change our hearts when we when we spend time in his word together. Um, We'll close with that.